welcome to Campaign Critique, a deep dive into modern marketing campaigns and what your brand or business can learn from them. I'm Daniel Blazer, a marketing professional with over a decade of experience, and today I'm chatting about the world of sneakers with Seth Merrill. Seth is a friend and colleague, and he's spent a lot of time and even some money learning about sneaker branding and marketing. In case you weren't aware, this industry has absolutely exploded over the past few years, and so we discuss some of the reasons why. Even if you couldn't care less about sneakers, there are some really great marketing takeaways for any brand, including the importance of authenticity, yes, that word again, and storytelling. If storytelling and sneakers don't really seem to go together, well, you're about to find out how they do. All right, Seth, uh, thanks so much for chatting with me. I I think this is like actually a really interesting topic and it's not one that I know a ton about personally. So when I knew that, or when I found out that you have kind of been uh, researching kind of this, just the sneaker industry, specifically kind of recent trends and how it intersects with, you know, marketing best practices, et cetera. Um, anyway, that all, I was like, oh, that's an interesting conversation. So thanks for, for being here. Yeah, of course. Uh, it may be a little bit of the almost blind leading the blind. Cause I, I feel still so new to it myself. Like I watch YouTube videos from hardcore sneakerheads who've been collecting, you know, since the early 2000s. I feel like my kind of introduction to it has been from kind of getting more into like vintage clothing and collecting and selling that, which is kind of to me, one of the most interesting things about sneaker culture is it, I feel like it intersects and overlaps and kind of runs adjacent to so many other, you know, subcultures like streetwear, like, you know, NBA basketball. There's Twitter accounts now devoted entirely to like what NBA players are wearing, like what shoes they're wearing, where they, when they walk in, you know, it runs adjacent to rap and hip hop, um, you know, fashion now, like there's high fashion collaborations between, you know, Nike and like Dior and Versace and all these different brands. So it's become really interesting to me, um, you know, probably because also I've been stuck at home and really bored, but, but yeah, I'm excited to, to talk about it and kind of, you know, especially with how weird of a year it's been and kind of how that's impacted the sneaker market and sneaker culture, just kind of my, my points of view on it as well. I think it'll be interesting, uh, conversation. Totally. Um, and you just mentioned a lot of things that I know very little about when you're mentioning all the things that kind of run adjacent to this. So kind of what's your experience in this realm or you kind of mentioned a couple of things, but just like, why should anyone sort of listen to you, even if you consider yourself somewhat still new to the, the topic? Sure. So to me, I think one of the most interesting, why people should be paying attention to the sneaker market is because it's becoming, if not already, if it's not already there, it's become basically a a stock market. It's become like a viable business strategy to people to resell sneakers or to buy uh, limited edition sneakers and hold on to them. So one of, one of the biggest reselling sneaker reselling platforms in the world is called StockX, And they really do treat, they treat sneakers like assets. They treat them like, you know, things that you hold on to, you, you know, they, they have historical data on how a certain sneaker has appreciated and depreciated in value. And so it's really become a thing, I think, especially for generation Z where there's whole, there's a whole culture on it, especially on Instagram and Twitter devoted to people finding ways to basically 
kind of be a middleman between brands that are putting out that are putting out stickers and people who are willing to pay top dollar for some of the most limited edition sneakers. And there's a lot of interesting, you know, just for me being in marketing and being in content marketing and kind of seeing the way things are sold and talked about, it's been really interesting to see different patterns emerge in like, you know, to, to see almost like younger people who may not even have college degrees yet kind of falling into like interesting interesting like best practices just around the way they sell and get attention and and market and buy things and and kind of the way brands are responding i think in how they're now marketing and changing the way they sell to their consumers to build hype around you know products because it's it's not just like i think the days of like nike i mean their they're, nike itself is like killing uh partnerships with like big box stores like Kohl's, like um even I don't know if, if it's Zappos. I, I would have to check. But like a lot of these kind of traditional ways of selling su- shoes to consumers is going away. And you're seeing, I think, brands focus more on their brand and focus more on, okay, if we can create, you know, hype around. And I'll talk about hype a lot more later too. But like building hype around sneakers that are going to get attention and, and be attention grabbing in the culture on social media And then using that as a way to, you know, create kind of these, this, this aspirational lifestyle or aspirations around what sneakers you want. Like it lifts the rest of their product lines that serve kind of, you know, more traditional consumers who don't care about all that. But, but a lot of brands are, a lot of sneaker brands are going that way. Yeah. Um, like I kind of mentioned, I, I don't know a ton about this industry. I will say that a couple of weeks ago, um, we went on a, quick vacation to San Diego and I was in on the airport shuttle and there was a kid that had like his, you know, roll rolling luggage, but then he also was carrying like a, like a, uh, I don't know, like a mesh grocery store bag or whatever that was just filled with like night, like nice newish looking sneakers. And I was like, is he? it was, I was like, what is he doing with that? Is, is he just like taking those? Like they just had to come with him on the, on a trip he's taking or like maybe, yeah, maybe he was going to sell them someplace, but I, that was like his carry on luggage was just like this mesh bag filled with sneakers. And so anyway, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, kind of, you know, leading into this, like, I know this, this sneakerhead culture has really exploded, especially over the past few years, mentioning, you mentioned some of the the platforms that have helped kind of encourage this, but like, do you have any idea of how big of a market it currently is or like how much money is being spent on sneakers? Yeah. So I, I was doing some research, um, and, and globally the primary sneaker market, meaning the market for new sneakers from the manufacturer is, is around a hundred billion dollars globally. And, um, and it's about 20 billion in the U S and the, the resale market is, I think something like $6 billion globally and 2 billion in the U S. So just the market for people reselling sneakers is $2 billion, which is kind of crazy to me. Like I, I look on and know of at least four or five different just reselling apps that are devoted to, to not only sneakers, also like vintage streetwear and just other kind of like hyped streetwear items, like brands like Supreme and Kith and, and things like that. 
but it's it's kind of crazy because it's just like a whole it's just a whole new industry that seemingly came out of nowhere. But yeah, to your example, it's like that's kind of what I was talking about with them almost being seen as stocks is like is like it's a product. If you damage your shoe, you know, by shoving it in a suitcase, like that's that's just money you're throwing away on a sneaker that could be worth you know fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars, and like there's there's a whole there's all sorts of videos and stuff about cleaning sneakers. Like, you know, if you're there's, I mean, there's still a market for used sneakers, like, and new sneakers, but for people selling used, like high value in demand sneakers, there's like content for, for how to clean, how to keep them new and how to store them and things like that. Like it's, it's kind of insane. One thing that I've always wondered, and maybe you don't know the answer to this question, but like, it seems like there are these certain sneaker releases that are like super high profile. And I've wondered why like Nike or whatever it is, it doesn't seem like they're charging what they could. Like they'll release sneakers and I don't, I don't know the average cost, 150 bucks or something like that, but then they'll immediately go to the secondary market and get sold for 400 or 500 or whatever uh, dollars per, per, pair of shoes. So I I've wondered like, why don't these companies just price their stuff a little bit higher rather than having them immediately get on like, you know, they're basically just like, here you go right into the secondary market for like three or four times the price. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out that kind of thing myself. Cause it, it still baffles me what people will pay for a certain shoe. Like, like I'm, I feel like I'm into sneakers, but I'm not, I'm certainly not that into sneakers. I haven't paid Oh, I shouldn't say I haven't bought a shoe on the resale market, but I haven't bought a shoe on the resale market that I've paid more than like 20 or $30. It's MSRP for, um, I've, I've sold a shoe on the, I've sold a shoe that I paid $180 for and sold it for a thousand dollars on eBay within 24 hours. Um, but yeah, but I do have a couple of, of ideas kind of to what you're talking about that might explain why that's the case. So, the first is is this idea of hype that I've been talking about, which um, is obviously an idea somewhere else, but it's something that sneakerheads, hype beasts, like that's this, there's this whole subculture of you know people that get made up for being hype beasts who literally will just glom on to whatever the trendy thing is without even like it, the accusation is kind of like they don't have any taste of their own; they're just going after whatever is popular. Um, but hype is kind of this like unquant unquantifiable, just like the desire in the market for a certain thing that allows it to kind of maintain its value. And that can come and go based on kind of, kind of whatever. Like, I think most people would say that like the most hyped sneaker line in like the 2017s, 2018s was the easy line because of Kanye West and in a large extent to kind of what Kanye's public image has become like in the last year, year and a half, that hype has died down. And like the hype for Jordan, for the Jordan one model has gone astronomically high over, over the last year for like a variety of reasons. One being like, I mean, usually you can tie, you can tie like the, the, the hype and the desire for a sneaker back to like, did a famous rapper, did a famous hip hop artist wear it that, has a lot of Instagram followers. Cause if so, then people are going to go want, want to go buy it. And right now that's Travis Scott. Like he's driving a lot of, a lot of demand for like Jordan ones because he did some collaborations with Jordan. He's driving a lot of, um, hype for the 
Nike SB Nike dunk lines of shoes, which are, which are literally like cheap skate shoes that used to just sit on shelves and, you know, even as late as like the 2010s, but he started wearing them. He started making collaborations with them. And now these hundred dollar shoes are selling, you know, from at a minimum, like $400 up into a thousands of dollars for certain kind of certain pairs. And it's like, it's a line that gets a little bit more funky and crazy with its designs. Like you've probably seen the Ben and Jerry's dunk they did this summer. I don't know if you have, but that's been one of the most popular ones. They made a, they made a shoe that kind of looks like a a Ben and Jerry's ice cream pint. And that one's going for like $1,500. And again, these are shoes that retail for like, for like a hundred dollars. So that's kind of, I guess, to explain the, like why, why, why shoes can instantly resell. I think really what it is, is like, they're not just marketing this one limited collaboration, right? They're also saying something about their brand and their ability to deliver on future, like limited collaborations and keep bringing those things. And I think the fact that they're limited is what allows them to sell out. So instantly, if they were, you know, wildly, if they, if Nike priced them out the gate, like what the resale market is, I think people would would scoff at that. But if they also just release them in huge quantities, then um, they wouldn't be as desirable for people to hunt down and find, which I think is can't be ignored as part of what it is, is that people want them because they're limited. They want them because they're hard to get. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it I, maybe in a way it reminds me a little bit of um, like a concert tour, say like Taylor Swift or, you know, one of these big names that it's like they're the tickets also immediately gets like scooped up by bots and then it gets sold and you're like Taylor Swift, just sell more, just sell them for more money. Uh, but I guess, you know, she wants to, she doesn't want to look greedy. So I understand that. Right. Yeah. Or it's like, or it's like, why can't you just, why can't you go get a bigger venue and double the size? You know what I mean? But it's like, okay, then people aren't paying $800 for a scalp ticket. They're paying closer to what the asking price is. And it's, to me, it's really like, yeah, supply and demand for sure. Um, the other, the other aspect of it too, is I think a lot of people like Nike will release limited. This is kind of a trend I've seen on social media too, is like Nike will release really coveted ones, really limited ones here and there. And then they'll also drop basically like not lower quality, but like if they drop a Jordan one high, which is a really coveted silhouette of sneaker right now, maybe a few months later they'll drop one that's the Jordan one mid which is not as popular of a cut for like the hype beast reselling market and so you'll see people like when they release a new like Jordan one mid people will be like oh this is garbage why do they keep dropping these why do they keep you know really churning out so many of these when we want more like Jordan ones and everything but I think that the thing is is like they're banking on kind of the appeal of the brand to sell these lower priced, easier to get sneakers to people that don't care as much about like having that limited edition one. And that's what, you know, allows them to keep like selling, you know, selling, selling general release shoes versus kind of these, these hyped ones. Okay. That makes sense. So it's like, um, they, they'll release like the, the bigger, more sought after version first and then kind of ride that into selling some of the, the, maybe the, the secondary or yeah, like the, the less poor man's popular. version of it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
That makes sense. Um, so the idea of this podcast is to hopefully offer some insights or tips or, or whatnot for people that are in marketing, or maybe they're like a business owner and they want to do better with their businesses, marketing or whatever. So from that perspective, um, why should people pay attention to kind of sneakerhead culture and, and what's going on with these brands, right? If you're like, ah, I don't care about sneakers, I don't care about this. But I, I think there are maybe some reasons to pay attention. Can you kind of talk about those a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I think by far one of the biggest reasons is these sneaker brands and the sneaker lines that are winning have really compelling storytelling. And you see this reflected back by the community that they react really viscerally to, to shoes that have, that have good storytelling. It's the reason that like um, a lot of times some of the most coveted shoes are just shoes that are done with, you know, collaboration with a particular artist or with a small locals, uh, a sneaker shop in LA or something like that. It's because those, those people that they're collaborating with may have a really compelling storyline for, you know, why they designed this shoe this certain way or how it kind of calls back to their childhood or how it calls back, you know, to their memory of like the nineties or watching Michael Jordan back in the day. Um, and I feel like the sneakers that get remembered kind of year after year do have that really compelling, um, storytelling component to the point that you're seeing now, like these reselling apps are not just kind of like transactional, uh, marketplaces anymore they are really kind of leaning into this storytelling so for example the nike sneakers app um they have basically a, a feed like a social media feed that shows upcoming sneakers and and buying them but they also do like you know profiles on you know local sneaker shop owners they do um they'll do like kind of behind the design videos on certain sneakers and that's just one more thing that adds to the hype you know i think if nike treated these limited releases as just Hey, shut up and buy this product. People wouldn't respond to it. Like there does have to be a compelling story. Um, and not only just the brand telling them that, but leveraging the collaborators and leveraging their kind of personal social media presence and image and accounts to convey this storytelling, I think has gotten a lot more, you know, loose and free. It doesn't feel shoes don't really feel in this space, like just a commodity. It's really kind of a piece of art, a piece of expression. And I think there's a lot of kind of storytelling and copywriting and messaging things to be gleaned from, you know, kind of diving into this market a little bit. Yeah. Um, could you give us, uh, maybe an example of like a, you know, a specific, uh, sneaker model or brand or whatever, um, that kind of told a really good story or was, uh, in your mind, a, a, an example of just really strong branding and marketing? Yeah. So one of the ones, so, so back in March when I was, um, we just had our baby and then everything shut down and we were stuck at home. It was basically like, well, don't have anything else to do. Like I'll start kind of getting into just looking at sneakers and seeing what's available so that I'll have some new things to add to some outfits when <laughs> everything goes back to normal, which is now looking like it's going to be longer than it is. And I remember, um, some shoe, some shoe account that I follow that kind of, you know, keeps you up to date on like upcoming drops. They were posting like kind of grainy shots of this one sneaker that had appeared at, I don't want to say Paris fashion week, but 
basically some kind of like sneaker kind of like fashion show sneaker preview show and it it caught my attention instantly because it just looked crazy it looked like kind of like an astronaut's like moon boot slash cobbled together like raw edges kind of looked like kind of looked like a spaceship looked like a sweatshirt like it just had all these weird these weird kind of edges and designs but it also felt really cool and modern and and kind of interesting and um this line is called space hippie from nike so there wasn't a lot of information when it when it when i first got that that preview of it but it caught my eye um and then as it as more information dropped it was it became clear that like okay this was nike going in a totally different direction um so the space hippie line is basically kind of their attempt at they have this larger initiative called move to zero which is kind of their their uh initiative to eventually get to zero carbon emissions, zero carbon footprint and whatever. Um, but this was kind of their experimental, the experimental arm of that where they were making literally making shoes out of trash. So they're taking off cuts from like foam and insoles from other shoes. They were taking recycled like t-shirts and water bottles and stuff, um, grinding up basically other like rubber off cuts from outsoles and grinding them up into little pellets that they would then blast into existing like foam midsoles. And so it was this, it's this recycled uh, sneaker line that they called space hippie. And, and really kind of where the inspiration came from it is this idea that like if there were people living on Mars, there's no, you know, there's no resupply mission to earth. You kind of have to make the most of what you have. And a lot of like the design videos behind this space hippie line, even kind of referenced like, the Matt Damon movie, the Martian and how he kind of had to make the most of, of what he had and, and this idea of in situ resource utilization. So you just using what you have in the situation you're in. And so they kind of took that, that same approach of like, okay, if we're going to, if we're going to make a shoe just from kind of what we have here, what, what resources do we have access to? And they had access to a lot of waste that they were creating. And so these shoes are kind of the, the reflection of that, but also in a really cool way. I think a lot of times like uh, the idea of a recycled sneaker isn't new, but a lot of the, the shoes I've seen, like they either rely on the consumer returning the shoe back to the brand when it's reached the end of its lifespan. And then it gets ground up and like recycled into a new shoe or they just look so preposterous and unfeasible that they're not really stylish enough that you'd want to wear them consistently. But I feel like, the the space hippie line in particular caught a lot of people's attention because it had this kind of fresh, unique look and feel to it while also having this sustainability story behind it. That's really cool. Like that concept of like, if you were in space, like there's just, a, there's a lot more to that concept than you would normally think from like, yeah, it's a pair of sneakers, but it's like, no, no, they've imagined this scenario and they're playing this out in this way. Like, um, that's definitely cool. Um, and, and for those that are listening to this, um, depending on the podcast app that you're using, I will put in a, a chapter image, which means that you should be able to see an example of these sneakers right now. If you glance at your device, um, cause I feel like that's helpful to be able to see them. Um, so, you know, this is one good example. Are, are there any other examples that you feel like have really um, 
spoken to you or that have been kind of like um, standouts over the last year or two in like the sneaker world? And and if so, you know, kind of provide a little bit of that, the story or, you know, what, what specifically kind of made them successful or interesting? Yeah. So uh, another one of the ones recently, and this is a shoe I referenced that, that I got is I don't know the whole story behind the sneaker shop, but there's a, there's a shop in LA called union and they had a, a crazy popular collaboration on a Jordan Nike one in 2018 or 19, I believe. Um, so union LA worked with them on a Jordan one that it basically had, and we can include the photo for this too, but it was basically like them chopping up, um, to, two Jordan ones of different colorways and kind of attaching the bottom of the shoe to the top of the shoe with like an iconic stitching around the ankle area. And for some reason, those, those really like got people's attention and those shoes are, are selling for a crazy amount. Um, and so for their follow-up collaboration, they worked on, uh, they worked on a Jordan four. So just a later model of a shoe. And when pictures first came out, it was like pretty, pretty roundly criticized because apparently the tongue on the Jordan one is typically all the way up and it, it comes above the ankle. But on this model that they had created in collaboration with Nike, they had folded the tongue down um, over the front so that it was basically flush with the ankle and it showed a different tag than it normally does. This is all, this will all be like confusing to people that don't care about sneakers. Like even I didn't really care about this, but it was interesting to see people were losing their minds that it had this shorter tongue. They're like, this is not the normal logo. It's not the Jordan Jumpman with, with the flight text on it. Um, and then as, as more, so that was like early photos that were leaking, but as more came out, it turned out that the reason the tongue was that way is because the founder of the shop, when he was a kid in the nineties with his Jordan fours, he used to fold down the tongue uh, over the front because he liked them shorter. He's like, I know a lot of people don't, but I liked them shorter. And so what they actually did was on the shoes that were th- that this union LA Jordan four, they folded the tongue down, but then they stitched, they stitched it on the front so that when you get the shoe, you actually, they encourage you if you want, you have the option to just pick, pick and cut the stitching off and reveal the normal tongue so that it's really like customizable in that way to whatever you want. And that's, there's several other sneaker lines that have done this type of thing where it's like they have tearaway panels or the treatment on the leather like wears out over time. And so it kind of leans into this, this like customization aspect, this personalization aspect, which also kind of flies in the face of people that resell. Cause people that resell don't want, like they want brand new mint condition sneakers to sell. Cause otherwise the value goes lower, but it was really kind of that, that line kind of caught my, my eye a little bit because it was basically, you know, the, the founder of this, of this, uh, sneaker shop, the, the guy in charge of this collaboration, encouraging people to, you know, mess with the shoe to like customize it, to pick it apart, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. So, I mean, based on kind of what you're saying here, I feel like there are a few different things that are kind of like sticking out to me. Number one is like we mentioned before, like the including kind of a story behind products um, and, and not, you know, not just like a, you know, a simple story, but even sometimes these stories are like pretty detailed and in depth Um, kind of related to that. I feel like another takeaway is like 
actually including these de- details in the products, um, whether you realize, you know, the full reason that they're there, really kind of sweating those details. Um, that seems like another one. And then, and then another thing that I'm, I'm kind of getting from these examples is, um, just kind of embracing experimentation. You, you feel like Nike, they struck gold with the Air Jordan however many years ago, but they're, and I still think they're still making a ton of money off of those from what I've understood, but there's, they're also still coming up with new ideas constantly, which I think like to your point earlier, that is probably like the main reason why the sneakerhead culture is becoming more and more popular is like that, that energy has to come from somewhere. And a lot of it is from these new releases, the surprise releases, these, you know, it's almost like the, the rumors that, are, that start getting passed around and everything. So, um, anyway, just like that, that experimentation and embracing kind of the development process and, um, using that to kind of spread, uh, spread organically, like people will just naturally share, uh, and, and kind of, it's like they do better marketing than Nike could probably do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree with the experimentation thing. And the thing is I'm trying to think of kind of somebody listening to this who might work for a totally different industry or a totally different type of company. Like it, it almost seems like, well, I don't, you know, I'm, our brand maybe doesn't have the, the leeway to take a risk like that. You know what I mean? Like, if your company is only selling one or a few products, it's not like Nike where if, you know, uh, a shoe line flops, it's like, they're going to be fine. But, but really I think it's like baking this idea of experimentation and authenticity and kind of opening, opening up the way that your, your company works and iterates, like making that really transparent. I think any company can do that because Nike has been experimenting and, and been, quote unquote rebellious for a while. I mean, Jordan's first shoe that he wore was banned by the NBA because it didn't have any white paneling on it. It was just entirely red and black. And so that was like, that was like the big thing when his first shoe dropped. Um, and to me, I see it more as like Nike evolving the way they kind of tell that experimentation story because they're not really doing anything new or abandoning anything. It's kind of like this evolution of the story of of them kind of supporting creators and people that think differently. But I, I definitely agree on, on that, on that point of like, um, experimentation, authenticity. And you also mentioned like, uh, sweating the details. I think that's, that's a huge thing. One of, one of the things that kind of struck me about the space hippie line that I mentioned is they, they release these kind of behind the scenes, the design of the videos, like the, the behind the design videos where they interviewed, several of the designers for the sneaker line. And what struck me is how like the, the way that they talked about the shoe was as kind of raw and almost unprofessional, like in a way that kind of matched the, the spirit of the shoe itself. Like one of the designers said it looked like dryer lint, which I think is kind of crazy to think that a brand would put out a video, letting one of the product designers talk about the product that way a lot of them were like, yeah, it looks weird. Like they, they admit that it looks weird. Um, but that it is all experimental. I think a lot of times maybe brands are, are too close to, they, they hold their, they hold their brand with too much esteem and treat it too preciously. And I think that's kind of what resonates with a lot of people about sneakers is that 
brands aren't really being precious with their brand. They're letting other people define what it is and they're letting the community tell the stories about it. I know that, that you and I probably both know personally, like a lot of times those really interesting nerdy details, like I think they get kind of weeded out as, you know, brand content and as assets go up the chain through approvals. But I think it's kind of a testament to letting some of those really weird, really granular details and elements of storytelling stay really attract people to what it is you're selling. Yeah. I think you nailed it when you, you said, uh, authenticity. I've talked about that on several other episodes. Cause I, I feel like that is one of the most important things to keep in mind when you're doing any sort of marketing. Um, and I guess tied to that is, you know, kind of this concept of transparency or like honesty. Um, let's think about, you know, let's talk about another huge international brand that everyone recognizes in, um, Apple, right. Uh, To me, they take a completely different approach where it's like years and years and years after they release a product, maybe some, some sketches of the original prototype will leak. And then like Apple nerds will like devour those, but it's a very different process where it's like they perfect this whatever it is over the course of years sometimes, and then they release it. And it's like this, they, they almost present it as like this, this perfect ideal of a device. And they don't, a lot of times they don't even talk about the tech specs because it's just like, it doesn't matter. It's the essence of the thing, right? It's like, and and that's, I feel like that's maybe on the other side of the spectrum where, you know, versus this kind of this approach Nike is taking with some of their lines of like, no, let's talk about the fact that it looks like Dryerland. Let's talk about the fact that it's kind of weird or it's kind of strange or it's different. Let's show you the process and show you, you know, how these things come about. And, um, I mean, obviously it's, you can't really criticize Apple too much cause they're obviously worth trillions of dollars, but yeah. And they, in a lot of ways they pioneered that way of talking about their products. Cause it, it almost like matches the whole, you know, these are closed systems. You don't get a, you know, we made it perfect how it is. And their marketing really matches that. Like it's very evocative, but it's, it's definitely not like you wouldn't look at it and be like, Oh, that feels like a human being wrote that it, it feels all very perfectly curated. Yes. Yeah. And I, I guess because Apple has been so successful and, um, it's inspired so many copycats over the last decade or two. Um, I feel like a lot of people end up going that route with their marketing and their branding, but like I, maybe Nike can be another example in another, a different direction that people can look at and say, do we want to take the Apple approach or do we want to go this, this more, this Nike approach where it's a little bit more, you know, we'll show people, uh, the, how the, the sausage gets made or whatever terrible, uh, metaphor you want to use there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I mean, Nike does still have plenty of buttoned up really well-polished ads that feel like okay, they got, they put some resources behind this, but I think like in terms of like, uh, maybe the sneakers app in particular, which is kind of what I've been talking about where it has this feed of sneakers, but also does some storytelling. It's kind of like in a, in a lot of ways, I feel like I've, I've worked with some outdoor brands in the past and I feel like they all do this really well around kind of talking about the inspiration behind products and being open and honest about like, Oh, customers didn't like this about the last iteration, or they were saying that, you know, this thing got snagged when they were climbing, you know, doing a climb. So we added this feature. Like, I feel like outdoor brands have always been really good at this. And it's now getting to the point where I, I feel like sneaker brands are more so 
being being willing to talk about like how a shoe came to be versus just like yeah kind of this apple what you're talking about this apple model of like we dropped this perfectly created thing now go buy it you know what i mean like you have you have to earn and that's kind of another, i think another aspect of this you know ambiguous idea of hype that i'm talking about is that it has to be earned you can't just like force the next big thing like it has to take off in the community you know somebody famous has to wear it like you can't plan for that kind of stuff but you can create the circumstances where people want to be you know want to be seen wearing your product or having your product and that's kind of what what i think would be the takeaway too is like i feel like most brands when you hear authenticity it's it's like a it feel it may feel like a style or like a, just a way of talking that you can go out and and force and buy, but you really can't. I know it's cliche to say like you can't force authenticity, but you really can't. And I think a lot of people just overthink it. Like authenticity is as simple as writing and talking like people speak and leaving things unpolished. Like you, you really don't have to, you know, go try and be like the Wendy's Twitter account and be snarky and be overly like funny and Hey, fellow kids and all that stuff to be authentic. You just have to like strip some of the polish out of, you know, your marketing assets, your videos, your podcasts. And that's really not hard to do. I have two more questions, uh, that are on my list here. Number one is like, have you, have you seen other brands outside of sneaker world kind of starting to appropriate this, this, uh, let me try that again. Um, have you seen any other brands that are, you know, not sneaker companies kind of using some of the similar tactics as a Nike or, or some of these other companies? Yeah. Like I mentioned, I think, I think people can look to outdoor brands in general, uh, as a good example of being authentic and making products that, that can build hype really quickly and then transfer that hype into like a hero product for lack of a better term into like excitement for the brand and the product line as a whole. Um, Patagonia obviously is one of them. Um, they're really good at like being attuned to the moment and what their audience cares about in terms of like climate issues and, you know, land issues and conservation and things like that. And they're really good about just being blunt, taking a stand, uh, that type of thing. Arcteryx is also really good about kind of showing the, the like development cycle and the development process behind a lot of their products. And to me, it's almost like, you know, if you're going to pay three, four five, six hundred $600 for a jacket, like you have, you have to <laughs> convince people why they should buy that over something else. And so I think, uh, yeah, I think outdoor brands are a really good example of, especially for like for high dollar items too. Like they're a great example of kind of how to be authentic in a, in a non-annoying way. I've never heard anyone say is uh, that brand out loud Arcteryx? I, I Arc, yeah, it's Arcteryx. Arcteryx. Yeah. Yes. I'm familiar with the, like the word, but I have never. Yeah, and the weird logo. Yeah, muttered those of words. The dead bird. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of an interesting brand. Um, the one other thing that I thought of is I don't I'm not saying that this is a direct like implementation of the sneaker strategy, but I almost I also was thinking a little bit about uh, what Oreo has done over the last like. 10 ish years, um, with all these special edition flavors. And it, it, to me, that actually kind of reminded me when you're talking about these, these sneaker lines that 
all of a sudden get a lot of hype behind them. And it's like, people are, people want to add them to their collection. And it's kind of like this organic, uh, it, it kind of encourages this, this organic marketing where people are just talking about them and that's why people buy them. Um, anyway, I, like I said, I, I don't think it was like Oreo sat down and said, we want to be the, the Nike of cookies, but it does kind of seem similar maybe in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like they're, they release a limited edition. It's not because they're going to sell, you know, 3 million boxes of whatever flavor it is, is because they want to get the brand name out there. And so people will go to the grocery store and buy regular Oreos. Like I absolutely think that's, I think you're spot on there. Um, it makes me kind of think of, I know I just kind of trashed on the Wendy's Twitter account, which is another topic for another podcast. If you ever want to go into that, but I feel like you had pointed out to me last year that I think it was Wendy's released some whole like Dungeons and Dragons board game or something like that. And to me, that's like another kind of perfect example or implementation of this sneaker thing is just releasing something cool that feels like tied to culture. Like if it, it makes it makes the brand feel like we know kind of, we know our audience, like we know something they'll find interesting and entertaining. it's like, Wendy's is not making money off of, you know, selling this limited edition thing or, you know, KFC is not making money off of, you know, paying to paint some portrait of like a super fan or something, but it creates this sense that the brand's willing to kind of open itself up to, to be, to, to kind of what I said of not, not holding their brand so preciously, you know, not holding it in such esteem, but being kind of free and loose with, with kind of how they portray their brand. I wonder like what, at what point can a brand start to, you know, offer these like limited edition flavors, colorways, random side projects, you know, like I, I feel like your, your brand has to have a certain level of recognition and, and a certain level of support, because like if if you're like I'm a random brand that no one's heard of, hey, we have this special edition. Like I guess maybe it could pay off for you, but it's almost like it's like the deviation from the norm is part of what is attractive of uh, around this idea, right? That's yeah, I I totally agree with you. I would almost see it as like if the response from your audience isn't going to be, I can't believe they got away with doing this, then like <laughs> it's probably you know it's probably not going to get that type of attention that you want, or your brand isn't in the place where that will be seen as risky or experimental. Yeah. It's not risking anything if there's not like kind of expectations already or uh, surrounding it. And I think that's why so many people hate, for example, April fool's day is because it's like all these brands that haven't done anything to earn people's like actual loyalty or like energy given them just like throwing out fake products or things because it's what everyone else is doing. And it's like, uh, your brand doesn't really have the cachet that that seems that funny or risky. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, okay. So I have one more question I wanted to ask you. Like if you were thinking about 2021, 2022, like, uh, you know, all the, you know, the next couple of years, what do you think, how do you think the sneakerhead culture is going to evolve? And like, how do you think uh, these sneaker brands are going to change their, their strategy or, or do you think they will, or are they doubling down on what they're currently doing? Like kind of, what do you, what do you see for the future? Yeah, I think, I think doubling down is a very plausible, um, is a very plausible thing that will happen because they're, they're all basically, they're all going up. Um, like they're just basically everything's making more and more money. I think we're going to see 
a lot of competition between the reselling platforms and kind of seeing how they compete with each other to get attention. You know, some of them do really good, really good storytelling, but also they have to compete with each other on features and fees because a lot of them have, you know, reselling fees. eBay recently kind of got into the game to compete by by uh, doing 0% fees for shoes sold over $100 just because eBay has never really been seen as like a viable sneaker reselling site because I think historically a lot of people have just sold fake shoes and whatnot on there. But like, for example, that's, that's one of the ways that they're kind of getting themselves in the game. And I think, I think we'll see a lot more interesting features in the future. There is one, one app that I saw, um, which is, it was really interesting to me and I still don't really quite, I don't think I've wrapped my head around it, but they basically sell shares of like super high dollar streetwear items and sneakers and shoes. So instead of buying a $10,000 pair of shoes, you buy say, you know, five of a hundred shares in this one pair of sneakers that then you collectively hold with a group of people. And when it sells, you get, you know, money back on the shares that you own. So like taking the idea of shoes being stocks to the literal extreme, like that's, that's something that's kind of mind boggling to me, but it's, it's where it's where it's going. Um, and I think also like authentication is going to be a big one. That's kind of one of the big sticking points and pain points in the community is just with this industry being as big as it is, fake shoes out of China are becoming closer and closer to looking like real things and fooling people into buying, uh, into buying fake shoes, um, to the point where like, that's, that's kind of the big thing for these platforms is like efficient and consistent authentication. Um, so none of that's really, really marketing related, but I think, I think these brands have a challenge to like market new features in that way to attract people to their platforms for sure. That's really interesting. Um, Within, you know, the stock market, that concept is called fractional trading. There's a platform I was learning about the other day that offered that for like artwork. Like if you wanted to own a Picasso, but like obviously none of us can afford that, you could own a fraction of a Picasso. Um, So yeah, I guess this is just more and more of a trend. Um, when I first heard about it, I couldn't decide if it was genius or stupid. I guess the, I guess it seems like a scam. I'm like, this doesn't seem like it could be real. (laughs) I guess time will tell. And, um, I guess you could take the approach that investing in anything is better than just burning up your money on something that has no value. So, uh, anyway, time, time will tell, but that's, that's definitely interesting. I never thought about that fractional trading model applying to sneakers before. So. Most people could care less about about sneakers. They don't spend over twenty five dollars. They shop at you know outlets and and stuff. But that that form, that type of product, could be worth that much money to the point where people are willing to just buy a share of it. It's kind of insane. Yeah, but I mean, it's also kind of cool, I guess. Rather than owning a share of Nike, you own a share of this really expensive pair of Nikes. So I I, yes, I can get that it. You can't wear right, right, right. Um, <laughs> Well, cool. Uh, anything else that you kind of wanted to touch on uh, before we go? Yeah, I think just in terms of like takeaways, I, I'm i a writer. I write a lot. So I think about kind of like 
what is it about certain campaigns that are that are grabbing people? And to go back, if I can go back to the space hippie example a little bit, one of one of the things that most kind of caught me about that campaign in particular was that the like official style name they used for their shoes, they said they called them, this is trash. And so for people in kind of the sneaker community culture, you'll know that calling a shoe trash is basically the worst thing you could say about a shoe. It's basically dismissing it as ugly or not worth the money or not worth the hype. And so it was really interesting that to me, it seems really obvious that you would do that. But at the same time, it like, I found it interesting because Nike was basically acknowledging like this term, this phrase in their community and using it to describe a brand new product that they were releasing and expecting people to buy by really calling attention to the fact that it was made out of literal garbage. And I thought that was, that was kind of ballsy in a way because it, it showed like that they were willing to take this whole space hippie recycled garbage line to the extreme of literally calling the shoe trash itself and what i what i've been finding is that people really took to that took to that tagline and have been kind of repeating it back which i think is the dream of any content marketers to have the message that you spent so much time you know working on be reflected back to you um in the sense that like a lot of youtubers when they were reviewing the space hippie line they were using that as kind of a clickbait title so there's a, so many youtube videos you can find that have basically a play on that title where they'll say like this new sneaker is trash. And then it says literally in parentheses or, you know, like people replying in the comments, like this sneakers, the sneaker may be trash, but it's actually really cool or stuff like that. So, um, my, my takeaway for that would be listen to what your community is saying about your brand and about you listen to the phrases they, they use and find a way to, have that be reflected in the way you talk about your product because it'll feel more it'll feel more authentic to the people reading it. It kind of just shows like a confidence too that I, I like um yeah if you were not confident about your product then embracing the one of the worst terms for the product is like what? You wouldn't do that if unless you really felt like there was something cool there. Exactly. Yes, if they if it had actually been a ugly shoe that people didn't want, I think it they would have gotten burned for that. You know what I mean? Like it would not have gone over well to be self-deprecating if the shoe was actually bad, but doing that to a shoe that people are like, Oh no, this shoe is actually really good. It, it kind of made it more witty and more sticky in that way. Um, well, thanks so much for, for chatting. Like I mentioned at the beginning, like this is not a, a territory that I'm super familiar with, but I, I think that everyone listening should hopefully have like you know, at least learned something, um, about the sneakerhead world and hopefully also like gotten a few takeaways or things to think about for their own, you know, marketing strategies or kind of how they're thinking about the brands that they're working on. Um, yeah, I just think there's a lot, of, a lot here. So thanks again. Yeah, of course.